All right, good morning, church. I didn't think I had any tears left, man. I've been doing a lot of crying lately and um, just got overwhelmed again during the worship. And, you know, I love you guys. And, uh, Man, you know, this week I uh, I tried to memorize my sermon. I really did. I couldn't do it for the life of me. My my brain was like, Nah, bro, not this one, man. Not this one. Not this one. So, uh, for those of you who uh, are new here today and have no idea who I am, my name is Will Franco, and I've had the privilege of serving as the pastor of this incredible church for the past three years. And today I get the honor to preach my last sermon here. And uh, you know, as I was thinking about and praying about what I wanted to uh, talk about this morning, uh, you know, I was like, you know, Lord, I could just, I could say a lot of things, you know, I could recap, you know, I, I, and, I, and so, but you know, the Holy Spirit just convicted me and was like, you know, you should just say what you've said every week that you've been here. Um, talk about the gospel and talk about me and talk about what I've done. Um, and so that's what I've been doing. Yeah, thanks, friend. <laughs> that's what I've been, yeah, just leave it right there. That'd be helpful. <laughs> um, that's what I've been praying through. And so I decided, you know, I want to just talk to you guys about the gospel. Lily and I were doing the math uh, yesterday, which is a scary thing because both of us are really bad at it. And, uh, <laughs> and we did the math. I have preached 109 sermons to you guys, an average of uh, 50 minutes each. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and uh, I, I, I did. The, I don't know. I think it was like 90 hours of preaching. You guys have heard from me, so that's a lot. That's a lot of preaching. So I apologize for all that. But um, anyway, so this morning, like I said, I want to talk to you about the gospel. I want to talk to you about about Jesus and and what He came to do for us. And so the passage that we're going to be looking at today comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. It'll be here on the passage on the screen behind me. Uh, but if you can please stand for the reading of God's word. Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, says in verse 1, he says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For I received, uh, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Everyone say first importance. first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and, I do, not even, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. 
This is the word of the Lord. Father, we want to thank you for your word. And God, we thank you for the word that's in this word, Lord, which is the, 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 the word of good news that you have uh, given us in the gospel. And so, Father, I pray that as I explain this text and as I seek to unpack the good news of the gospel, I pray, Father, that, that you would keep me from saying anything that does not come from you. And Lord, I pray that this congregation would be reminded again that this church is built on the foundation of your word and that the, the, the real leader, the, the real shepherd of this church is Jesus Christ. And that's who we want to elevate and that's who we want to look to again today. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be honoring and glorifying to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. That is my prayer. That is our prayer. And we pray it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> all right. So this morning, like I said, I'm going to ha have this up here just because I know I'm going to forget something. Um, this morning, um, what we're going to do is we are going to look at 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11, and we're going to look at it under two headings. Uh, we're going to spend the majority of our time this morning looking at the message, and then we are going to conclude by looking at the messenger. The message, then the messenger. Now, what I want to do is as we look at the message, there are three things that we discover about this message. Paul here is trying to communicate a very important message to the church in Corinth. And there's three things about this message that he needs them to know. He wants them to see the priority of the message. Then he wants them to see the power of the message. And then he wants them to discover the proof for the message. So the priority, the power, and the proof. So let's begin by looking at the priority of the message. Look what it says in the beginning of the passage. He says, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. So the first thing that Paul does here is Paul wants them to understand the priority of the gospel the priority of this message. It is so important that Paul says, I am reminding you again of something that I have already told you before. And I, and I guarantee you, if Paul wrote four more letters or six more letters, he would bring it up again and again and again. And he wants to remind them of the priority of this gospel message. He describes it, and if you go to the next slide, he describes it as a first importance. He says, for what I received, I passed on to you as a first importance. But here's one of the things I need you to realize. One of the things that we might be tempted to do when we look at that phrase, first importance, is we might assume that the gospel should come first. And it should, but it's more than that. Because the problem with the gospel just coming first is that at some point you cross it out and you move on to the second thing on the list and the third thing on the list and the fourth thing on the list. But what I need you to see is that the way it's written there in the Greek, that, that, that concept of first importance, it doesn't mean the first thing on your to-do list. It has to do more with centrality than priority. Here's the quote that I want to read to you. It comes from this, uh, this commentator, W.H. Ware. He says, some have understood the words translated of first importance in the temporal sense of at the first. But that seems redundant because at all times, Paul's preaching identified the death and resurrection of Christ with the gospel. Listen to this. The stress is on the centrality of these doctrines to the gospel message. 
So what I need you to see here, when I bring up that idea of priority, Paul wants them to see the priority of the gospel, but he is focusing not on the necessarily the, the, the first, it being the first thing, but it being the center thing. One of the things that we've talked about here for the past few years is that we are a gospel-centered church. Everything we do is centered around the gospel. And the reason why that's important is, like I said, if, if it's the first thing, then you cross it out and you move on to the next thing. But when it's the only thing, it's the thing that you're building the whole church around, then here's what starts to happen. This is what I pray have, has happened to you guys over the past three years, is the gospel then starts to become the center of your life. And so now you're asking, how does the gospel impact my marriage? And how does the gospel impact my parenting? And how does the gospel impact my singleness? And how does the gospel impact my academics? And the gospel then becomes central to your life, not just the first thing in your life. And so that's what Paul wants them to understand, that I'm bringing this up again because this is the center of our church. This is the center of what we're doing here. This should be the center of your life. And so by priority, what I mean is centrality, the centrality of the gospel. You see, what started to happen with the church in Corinth is that they had accepted the gospel, but they were no longer appreciating it. That's how a lot of us are, right? We, we've accepted the gospel, but we no longer appreciate the gospel. So the people in Corinth, the gospel was prominent, but it wasn't preeminent. I've talked about this in the past. They, they, they were people who, like us, they believed in grace a lot, but not grace alone. Right? Can I get an amen for that? that that's, what, that's how I am, and I preach it every week. I believe in grace a lot, but not grace alone. You know, at some point, I got to pull myself up by my own bootstraps, and I got to read my, my devotional, and I got to check my boxes, and I got to give, and I got to serve. And, and Paul's saying, no, 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 no. You, you understand that, that, that it's easy to believe the gospel initially. It's very hard to believe the gospel continually. Anybody can believe it initially, but it is difficult to believe it continually. It's, it's easy to believe the gospel the first time, but what about the 44th time? And what about the 200th time? And what about the 500th time? It's easy to believe in Jesus the first day, but what about every day? That's why Paul here is talking to them about the centrality of the gospel. He says, look, look, you started by believing, but now you have shifted into behaving. And you think that you're getting this because of how you are behaving, not because of what you believed. And so Paul does what I've done, and I do it because he did it. He just gives them the gospel again and again. And right when they think they get it, he gives it to them again and again and again. That's how Paul works. And what I love here is that he says in, in, in the, the, the Greek phrase there, he says in the English, it says, taking a stand. He's like, you have taken, let me, let me reread it for you because I want to make sure I get it right. He says, um, he says, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. Now, the reason why that word, that, that, that Greek word there is so important is because it seems like it's only past tense in the English. But what's interesting about the, the Greek is that the word there is in the perfect tense. And so it's something that you did once, but that you have to continually do again and again and again and again. So it was done in the past, but it has to be continually kept up. Listen, the reason why Paul has to remind us, not just them, but us, to take a stand in the gospel is because every single person in here, whether you are a Christian or a Muslim or a Catholic or, a, or an atheist or whatever you are, every single person in here is taking a stand on something. 
Every single person in here, like we sang in the song, is building their life on something. And so the question is, is it on the gospel or is it on something else? Because what happens is for a lot of us, what we are doing is, yeah, we believe in Jesus a little bit. We believe in Jesus at the beginning, but we're actually taking a stand on our resume. We're actually taking a stand on our career. We're actually taking a stand on our family, on our wealth, on our works. But what the Bible says is that the only thing you should keep, take a stand on is on Christ, the solid rock. It's the only thing. But man, it's easy to walk away from it. It is so easy to go and take a stand on, on this thing or, or that thing. And I, I, was, I would argue, at least for me, I, I don't know for you, but I know that for me, part of the reason why I'm so tempted to not take a stand on the gospel is because if I take a stand on the gospel, then the only one who gets the glory and the credit is God. And I want a little bit of glory and credit. Why you got to hog it all? And so I'm going to go ahead and stand on the things that make me look good. It's funny that we never stand on the things that we're bad at. Right? No one does that. We stand on the, on the things that we are tempted to find our security, our significance, our acceptance in. Here, here's essentially what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, look, the focus has to be the gospel. See, a lot of churches, what happens is, as churches, we, we can get so distracted with, with different things and, and different activities. And what Paul's saying is, look, there's nothing wrong with social action. There's nothing wrong with political awareness. There's, there's nothing wrong with community advancement. There, there's nothing wrong with economic assistance, but our focus must always be on Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what Paul's telling us. It's the only way It'll work. Then, after he talks to us um, about the priority of this message, the next thing he talks to us about is the power of this message. See, one of the things that makes this message, one of the features that makes this message so unique is the power of it. The power of it. Look what he says in the next part of the section. Well, I'm going to reread verse 1 and 2. But he says, he says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. Listen to this. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. But again, just like, if you go back, uh, uh, just like the, the previous thing we were talking about, the previous line where, where it seemed like it was the, you have taken your stand, it seems like something past tense that already happened. It's, the, it's written in the same way here where he says you are saved. It's, it's, it's the gospel actually saves us initially, but then proceeds to save us continually. The same gospel that saved us initially continues then to save us continually. It happens again and again and again. So, so the way I've described it is this way. When, when you place your faith in Jesus, you are automatically changed positionally. Positionally, you have been saved. You go from being an enemy to being, uh, uh, to being God's ally. You go from being an orphan to being God's child. Positionally, that happens immediately. But then what starts to happen from that moment on is you start then going from your positional salvation to your progressive salvation. All these things are already true of you positionally, and now they're going to become true of you progressively. So, the long, so I'll give you an example of Lily and I when we got married. When Lily and I got married, we were married, right? That day we were married. But I would argue that I am more married to my wife 10 years later than I was the day I first got married. See, I was fully married positionally from day one, but I am, th th those, those vows that I made are more true today because we've had 10 years together 
than from when we initially were married. And so what we see is that that's why the gospel is so crucial, because the gospel saves you positionally, but then that same gospel then starts to save you progressively. And the more you believe it, and the more you embrace it, and the more you meditate on it, the more it starts to transform you, and the same thing that saved you is the same thing that sanctifies you. That's why Paul says that you are being saved. And here's the reason why we need to keep hearing the gospel, because remember what we've said. The gospel is essentially, in light of scripture, is for non-believers, right? And so one of the things that you might be tempted to assume is, well, if I've already believed in Jesus, I'm no longer a non-believer. But how many of us are still non-believers in our marriages? And how many of us are still non-believers in our parenting? And how many of us are still non-believers when it comes to our future or with our past or with our sexuality or with our money? If the gospel is for non-believers, then the gospel is for you. And the gospel is for me. Because I still don't believe the gospel. I don't. There are several areas in my life where I just don't believe the gospel. But the thing that I love about what Paul does here, Paul is so, one of the, one of the commentators I read this week said, if, if God wouldn't have saved Paul, there is no doubt that Paul would have been one of the most famous Jewish scholars in human history because of how brilliant the man was. And one of the things that shows his brilliance is the word that he chooses to describe this message. He chooses a very specific phrase in Greek, a, Greek that had never, a word that had never really been used in religious, in religious uh, uh, realms. It was almost always a military term. He describes this, this message as good news, the evangelion. Now, why is that significant? Because in those days, like now, today, because we kind of we grew up in this, right, or, or, you, or you, we've heard this before, we know, okay, yeah, the gospel is good news. But Paul is essentially the first one that uses it in this way. He takes P Jesus' language and he, he, he continues to promote it. He says the gospel is good news. Not good advice. Good news. Not good steps. Good news. Not, help, not a helpful method, good news. He uses the word news. Why is that good news, that he uses the word good news? Because Paul, he takes a, a, a word or a phrase that was used only in military context up to that point. Up to that point, here's what would happen. Let's say, because this is a Greek word, so here's what would happen. If you were a Greek uh, citizen, there were, city, there were different city-states that, were, that, were, that you would live in, and what would happen is there would be battles. And so the soldiers would go out and fight. But they didn't have Twitter, and they didn't have uh, MSNBC, and they didn't have uh, 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 CNN or Fox News. And so when the soldiers would leave, they didn't know what would happen. And you would sit there and you would be anxious and you would be worried and you would be concerned because you knew that if, because what would happen is they would fight the battle and almost always there was one messenger who would stay behind and once the, the, the outcome was decided, he would run back to the town and let them know, hey, either we won or we lost. Either we are completely free and the burden is off and, 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 and the victory is ours or someone's about to show up and and rape our women and kill our children and burn our crops. And so they would sit there anxiously waiting, waiting, waiting. What type of news were they going to receive? Was it bad news or was it evangelion, good news? Here's the thing about this, though. 
One of the stories that I heard that I didn't even know this, but there was a, a, a once a, there was a famous battle in, in, in Greece. It was the, the Battle of Marathon, or the, the, yeah, the Battle of Marathon. And at the end of the battle, it says that the individual, who, the, the guy who was kind of assigned to be the messenger, he sprinted back to the town. And when he got there, he said, we won, and died on the spot because he, he ran so hard to get back to the people. Here's what's crazy about Jesus Jesus didn't show up and say we won and then died. Jesus died and then said we won. So think about this, guys. Think about, put yourself in, in, in the shoes of these citizens, okay? You're living in a city-state in Greece. And all of a sudden, you, you, you've been sitting there, it's been, it's been weeks, and you guys haven't heard a word. And all of a sudden, from the horizon, you see a messenger showing up. And, 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 and you start getting anxious, like, well, what's going to be the news? Uh, did we win or did we lose? Are we free or are we slaves? He shows up and says, you won. Listen, when you get that news, you don't respond to that casually. You don't just say, oh, well, thanks, I'm going to go on with my day. No, no, no. Your whole day is changed. Your whole month is changed. Your whole life is changed because of the good news that was just given to you. That's the thing about news. You either live in light of it or you don't. You either accept the news or you don't accept the news. But that's what news is. It's not advice. It's not, hey, take it and do it. No, 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 it's news. So I'm either going to live in light of the victory or I'm not going to live in light of the victory. And one of the things that has happened with me, and I know it's happened with you because we're all human, is that many of us, have, we live as if the messenger came back and told us we lost. We live as if Jesus never came back. And we're victims instead of victors. And we act like survivors instead of conquerors. That's why this is amazing. That he uses the word good news. You know, here's what's so funny, though. Every week, and I know this is true because I see it in your eyes, right? Every week when you come to, to church, you, you, the will, your will wants good advice. Hey, Will, man, I need help on my parenting, man. I need to figure out this singleness thing. Man, I, need, I, need, I, I, just, I just need you to tell me the three steps on how, to, on how to be married or whatever it is that you're concerned about. Man, every week there's a part of you that you man, my soul, my, my will just wants good advice. But then you hear the good news and you realize my, my will wants that, but my soul needs good news. My will wants good advice, but my soul needs good news. Listen, because if all I gave you was good advice, then I'm no different than Tony Robbins. You don't need advice. Trust me, you have enough advice, and you're not doing it. What your soul needs is good news. See, the reason why I think we're so attracted to advice is because there's a part of us that thinks, if I can do the advice part right, then again, I get part of the glory, I get part of the credit. The problem with good news is you had nothing to do with it. So you either accept it, or you don't, but you had nothing to do with it. And I think that's why we prefer good advice. Like the Corinthians, we go from accepting the gospel, but we don't really appreciate the gospel. The gospel's prominent, but it's not really preeminent. I gotta, I gotta have a hand in this, I gotta do something. That's why this is so important. And that's why this message is so powerful. One of the things that I love about uh, the power of this message 
is that this, this message not only saves you initially, like we said, but it saves you uh, 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 continually. Not only does it save you positionally, but it saves you progressively. But what's beautiful about this message is that according to Romans chapter 1, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Now, now don't miss that. He doesn't say that it's a message about the power of God. No, no, no. He says it is the power of God. And so the reason why over the past three years, over the past 109 sermons, the reason why I get to the end of my sermon, the reason why your heart starts to burn within you like the two guys on the road to Emmaus, is not because I'm getting loud. It's not because I'm a gifted preacher, but it's because the gospel is the power of God. It is the very power of God. It changes you on the spot. You see, when you get application, you think, man, I'm going to do this on Tuesday and it's going to change my life. Man, but when you get the gospel, when instead of application, you get adoration, you don't wait till Tuesday. It happens right there. You know what's so crazy to me? That I have gone out of my way. When I started Tri Village, I said, I, I'm going to do an experiment here. And my experience is going to be, for however long God has me here, I'm not going to focus on any application. I'm going to just give gospel every week and see what happens to a group of people. And what's crazy is, the good news has motivated you to do good works more than good advice has. You've done more good works because of the good news being your motivation than good advice being your motivation. So what we see is that Paul was right. Gratitude and grace is a much better motivator than guilt. Much better. You'll go a lot further on gratitude than on guilt. What's beautiful about the gospel is that it's not just a body of information. It is a source of power. And the more we tap into that power, the more our hearts will burn within us, and the more we will carry out the work that God is calling us to carry out. So let's go back to the three features. So we've seen the priority of the message, and we've seen the power of the message. And, and the last thing I want to do here under this first point is I want to look at the proof the proof of the message. One of the things that stood out to me is that the proof of this message, the proof that this message works is in the very passage itself. Like there are two, there are two examples that prove to us that this gospel, that this good news, that this message is a genuine message, a powerful message that should be a priority in our lives. The first proof is the Corinthians and the second proof are the apostles. So, so let's look at the two proofs, the, the, the two things that prove that this message is legitimate. The first group is the Corinthians. Listen, you, you guys have heard of Keeping Up with the Kardashians. Some of you watch Keeping Up with the Kardashians, and you should, you should check your heart. All right, but, but, but the Kardashians are trying to keep up with the Corinthians, okay? They don't hold a candle to the Corinthians. These people were a hot mess. The first... 13 chapters of this book, 14 chapters, Paul's just calling them out on all the stuff they were doing wrong. They had a, a biblical, an unbiblical view on leadership. They had an unbiblical view on community. They had an unbiblical view on the Lord's Supper. They had an unbiblical view on the spiritual gifts. This is by far the most dysfunctional congregation that the Apostle Paul has ever worked with. But what's so crazy about this gospel is that this gospel is so powerful that, that all the proof we need is that these people are in that these people have been allowed in. 
What's crazy is that Paul, for the first several chapters of this book, he is, he is coming across and he is condemning their activity. Again and again, he's condemning their actions, condemning their actions, condemning their actions. But then he gets here in verse 1 and he affirms their identity. So he condemns their activity because they're sinners, but then he affirms their identity because they're saved. He calls these, these fools brothers and sisters. And so what that shows us is that this gospel is different from any other good news or any other religion. Because any other religion, whether it's Buddhism or Judaism or whatever ism you want, you, you want to be about, it's you got to do this, 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 and this, and then you're on the inside. Not the gospel. Th this group of idiots are in. Mo, Larry, and Curly are in. Brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, it says. Think about how crazy that is. Even the Corinthians would have been like, really? You've been yelling at us for 14 chapters. Brothers and sisters? What? He's using covenant language. It's not because of what they did, but it's because of what Jesus did. And when God sees the church in Corinth, and get this, when God sees the church at Tri-Village Church, he doesn't see you, he sees Jesus. We are in Christ if you place your faith in him. And so his righteousness and his goodness and his perfection and his moral record are attributed to you. And so you are called brothers and sisters when that's the furthest thing from the truth. So the first group is the Corinthians. That's the first proof that this message is legitimate. But the second group is the apostles because he goes on to talk about Peter and, and James and the 500, all these different people that, that, are, that see the, the, the resurrected Jesus. And then he talks about himself, which what's interesting about Paul is that Paul is unique in that he didn't see the resurrected Jesus. He saw the post-ascension Jesus. He's the one guy that saw Jesus after he ascended, not after he resurrected. Jesus was in heaven for a long time before he showed up to Paul. He talks about the apostles. And what's crazy is one of the things that we are tempted to do with these original disciples is we are tempted to deify them and, and treat them like they were special people, but they weren't. They were broken, sinful people, incredibly broken and incredibly sinful people. And what I love about it is that he shows up to Peter. And, and one commentator put it this way. He said, think about it. The, at, least, at least in the way Paul puts it, the first person that Paul shows up to is Peter. I mean, not Paul. The first person that Jesus shows up to is Peter. So think about it. The first person that he shows up to is the last person who betrayed him. If that's not the grace of God, I don't know what it is. The last person who betrayed Jesus, according to Paul's list, is the first person that he shows up to. And even commentators say that when we look at the Gospels, it's clear that Peter is not the first person Jesus shows up to. But what they say is maybe Paul knows of a story that's not in Scripture. And the first person he shows up to is the last person who betrayed him. It's him reminding him, Peter, hey, listen, man, this is all about grace. And you are my brother because of what I've done and not because of what you've done. But it's not just Peter. It's James. James, the James there is his brother. It says, in, I think it's in John 6, where, where Jesus is actually being teased by his brothers. 
His brothers are actually making fun of him. They're saying, hey, you should go to that, that, that festival because you know you're the son of God, right? And they're teasing him. They're, they're making fun of him. So James was one of his brothers. James was one of the people mocking Jesus. You want to talk about a barrier in believing that, that someone's the son of God? I, I, my brother would never believe in me as a savior. If I came up with a list of the people least likely to believe in me as the Messiah, he would be number one on that list. We shared a room for way too long. So James has his own story. And he talks about the 500. All these different people had these different stories. But what they shows us is that it's proof that Jesus, the, 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 the fact that he shows up not just to the Corinthians, the Corinthians are saved, but then the apostles, these broken, sinful, wicked people. It's proof that this message is different from any other message that's ever been preached. That's the ultimate proof. Only the gospel can transform a group of pagans, a group of doubters, a group of idolaters, a group of drunkards into the people of God. Only the gospel can do that. Only the gospel can, trans can transform you and me into the people of God. Because we are just as broken and just as sinful and just as wicked as the people in this story. And so we see, go back to the three things, what we see is that this message... Not only should it be a priority, but it's powerful and there's proof to back it up. So now that we've seen the message, uh, what I want to do with the rest of our time is I want to take a closer look at the messenger. Actually, it's more plural. It's not just the messenger. It's actually the messengers because there's two messengers that I want to take a closer look at here. Here's the thing about this passage and here's the thing about this message. What makes this message so unique what makes it so different is the messengers. So part of the reason why this message is so different is because of the messengers that brought it. And the reason why I, I say messengers, plural, is because there's actually two types of messengers. There's a divine messenger, and then there's a human messenger. There's a divine one, and then there's a human one. Now usually, for those of you who've been here, I usually end with the divine one. But I'm actually starting with the divine one because I want to end a little differently today. So the first messenger that I want you to see that makes this message, this good news, different from any other message that's ever been preached is the divine messenger, the true, the first messenger, the ultimate messenger, and his name is Jesus Christ. Here's the thing about Jesus. The message that Jesus preached was so controversial, it was so counterintuitive that, that at the end of his life, he ended up on a cross because the religious people could not take the idea that they couldn't bring anything to the table. It was the religious people that killed Jesus. It was the people who wanted to do something about their salvation that killed Jesus. Don't miss that. Don't forget that. Those are the people who, did, who he didn't want them around. Those are the people that were offended by his message. How dare you preach such a powerful uh, uh, message? How dare you preach a message that's all about you and not about me? It's the religious people that killed Jesus. They put him on a cross. But here's what's crazy. If you look at what Paul says in the passage, when he starts to describe the, the gospel, he says, I deliver to you as of first importance. And then he starts to describe the gospel. And he starts not where Jesus was, when Jesus was born. He starts when Jesus died. So what's so fascinating is that men take Jesus and they crucify him. And at that very moment is what makes the gospel the gospel, Jesus being crucified. 
It says that he is crucified, and then he is buried, and then he is resurrected, and then he ascends. So the thing that authenticates this message, the thing that makes this message different from any other message, is that Jesus, like every other religious leader, dies, but unlike any other religious leader, he raises again. That's what makes the gospel the gospel. That's what makes the gospel different from any other message and from any other religion. Think about this. Think about how many thousands of people died on a Roman cross. The thousands of people that died on a Roman cross. But what's beautiful about this individual is that when he died, he died for the sins of the world. He didn't die for his sins. He died for the sins of the world. And then in the passage, here, here's what it says in the passage that I just, I found this just so uh, uh, encouraging. Uh, he talks about Jesus and he says that in verse four, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scripture. Jesus was raised. But what's beautiful about the Greek though is that the Greek there is in the passive voice. So in other words, there was someone else raising Jesus from the dead. So, so when we think of Jesus raising from the dead, we tend to think Jesus went, died, and then he rose himself from the dead. That's part of it. But in this passage in particular, it's in the passive voice. And the reason why it's in the passive voice is because what, what Paul wants us to know is that someone else actually rose Jesus from the dead. And the person who rose Jesus from the dead and who raised Jesus from the dead was his father. And the reason why that's so important and the reason why that's very critical is because by the father raising Jesus from the dead, what he said was, I am accepting the payment that you made. Jesus didn't just die for our sins, but by the father raising him from the dead, passive voice, the father's like, I accept your payment. At the cross, Jesus wrote a check. And at the resurrection, God cashed it. He raised him. He accepted him. It changes it. it changes everything when we understand that. It was the, he was the only person who got the Father's acceptance. So if that's true, here's what this means, guys. If that's true, then what it means is that the gospel is not about us holding fast to Jesus. It's about Jesus holding fast to us. If the gospel is not about us standing firm in him. It's about him standing firm for us. The gospel is not about us going up to him. It's about him coming down to us. The gospel is not, what about, it's not about what we do for him. It's about what he has done for us. If this is true, then it changes everything. See, the reason why you and I get to stand, remember what it said, it says to stand firm. The reason why you and I get to stand in a place of acceptance, the reason why you and I get to stand in a place of forgiveness, the reason why you and I get to stand in a place of pardon, the reason why you and I get to stand in a place of approval is because Jesus stood in the place of punishment and Jesus stood in the place of judgment and Jesus stood in the place of isolation. That's why we get to stand in that place. We get to stand in his place because he stood in our place. And what I love about Jesus and what I love about this gospel is that on the one hand, it is very powerful, but on the other hand, it is very personal. And here's what I mean. It is powerful because it can save anybody, but it's personal because the way he reveals himself to people is different depending on the individual. The way he revealed himself to Paul was different from how he revealed himself to Peter. And it was different from how he revealed himself to Mary. And one of my favorite stories in, in the Chronicle of Narnia books is when the, the, these two uh, children are talking to Aslan and they can't figure out why Aslan re re revealed himself differently to one and that he did to the other. 
And essentially, Aslan says, I will reveal myself. They, they will see the lion that they need to see. He changes how he approaches. So, so Jesus, on the one hand, is very powerful, but on the other hand, he is very personal. And what I love about the gospel is that the gospel, wherever you are at, it meets you there. So it offers adoption for the orphan. It offers a marriage for the widow. It offers food for the hungry. It offers a home for the lost. It it offers forgiveness for the guilty. So no matter where you are, the gospel is not just powerful enough to save you but it's personal enough to meet you where you are. And if that's not good news, then you probably don't have a pulse. And if that's the case, we should call the ambulance quickly. That's why this is so so mind-blowing to me. But think about this. Not only is there a divine messenger, but there's also a human messenger because Paul, at the end of the passage, he starts to describe who he is. He says, for I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. So, so, so there's, a, there's a divine messenger, but there's also a human messenger. And that's where we come in. It's not just Paul, it's, it's all of us. There are human messengers. And what I love about Paul is that Paul is overwhelmed here, but he's not overwhelmed by guilt. Listen, if anyone had any right to be overwhelmed by guilt, it was Paul. Not only did he kill people, he killed Christian people. He was a murderer. But what's beautiful about this passage is that what overwhelms uh, uh, Paul is not guilt, it's grace. He's overwhelmed by, by the grace of of God. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. You know, your story might be totally different from Paul, but if you know Jesus, you and I can say the same thing. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. It's only by the grace of God that you are what you are and you are who you are. By the grace of God, Paul says, What I love about him is is he has such a healthy self-image. On the one hand, he is very honest about his sin. But on the other hand, he is very hopeful about his salvation. Listen, when you finally start to understand the gospel, no one should think higher of you and no one should think lower of you than you. Nobody. Because in your flesh, you're way worse than what you thought. But in Christ, you are way better than what you could have imagined. And so when someone compliments you, you're like, hey, yeah, that's true. I might be a good accountant or pastor or or mother or whatever, but man, I'm a child of God. I'm loved and accepted by the king. No compliment should affect you because you've already received the ultimate compliment in the gospel. And if anyone ever gives you feedback, there's no need to get offended because you're like, you don't even know the half of it. I'm a terrible person. I'm a broken sinner. That's just a, a, a little piece of the, of the problem. I love his self-image. He, he is humbled because of his sin, but he is bold because of his salvation. But he's not overwhelmed by guilt. He is overwhelmed by grace. Listen, the only, if you struggle with guilt, then welcome to the club. 
Guilt has been a major part of my Christian life. But the only thing that will ever overcome guilt is grace. You overcome it with a stronger power, which is the grace of God. Paul is so blown away by the gospel because he says, I have been transformed uh, from a persecutor to a preacher, from a murderer to a minister, from a Pharisee to a pastor. I have gone from the top of my class to the back of the line. But it is by grace that I am what I am. It is because of grace that I am what I am. Here's one of the things that just gets me. And this is something that I, I have to confess daily. I get so used to the gospel. I remember, I remember, uh, um, I don't even remember what, even what house it was. And Lily and I, there was a house that we lived in where we can hear a train track. Don't remember which one it was. But there was a, we could hear the train track. I remember thinking, that's going to be really annoying. That's going to be super annoying. Oh, man, how am I going to sleep at night? And after about a few weeks, never heard the train again. The train was still there. I just didn't hear it anymore. That's how the gospel is. It saves you and you're like, I'll never forget this. This is the most important thing I've ever heard. This changes everything. A few weeks, a few months, a few years go by and it's just white noise in the background. But Paul here, he says, look, look, the love of God is so deep and so wide and so expansive, and so inclusive, and so welcoming that even I can be saved. Me. Even I can be saved. A, a murderer and a persecutor. It's not white noise to him. And it shouldn't be to us. And that's why one of the things that really ticks me off is when Christians minimize their testimony. So, so some of them are like, well, it, 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 I, I, yeah, you know, it's, yeah, I got saved, but, you know, I grew up in a Christian home, so mm, it was kind of happening anyways, right? It was bound to happen. Listen, it doesn't matter if you were saved early or late. It doesn't matter if you were saved suddenly or progressively. It doesn't matter if you were saved in a Sunday school or in a jail cell. It is by, because it's by the grace of God that you are who you are. Don't ever minimize the grace of God. How dare you? How dare I minimize the grace of God? It is by the grace of God that you are who you are. What I love about this, though, is that not only does it change your view of yourself, because Paul clearly has a very specific view of himself here, but it also changes the way you view others. Because I, I don't want you to miss the last, do I have the last verse up there? Can you go to the end of 11? He says, whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. So I want you to see here, not only does the, the, the gospel change Paul's view of himself, but it changes his view of other people because he says, whether it is I or they, who cares who's preaching? As long as it's the same message. As long as it's the same Savior. As long as it's the same salvation. Who cares who the preacher is? If this is true, it doesn't matter who's talking to you as long as they're telling you the truth and as long as they're elevating Christ. That's what Paul says here. Paul says it doesn't matter if it's Paul or Peter or James or the 500 or, the, or Apollos or Barnabas or Will or Lon or Chad. 
The preacher doesn't matter. The message does. Let me, let me pray. Father, as we prepare ourselves to take from the table, Lord, we are grateful that we get to. And what a, what a wonderful way to end this season at your table. Father, at your table, we are all equal. At your table, we are all the same. Father, it says in, in the Psalms that you prepare a table before us, before the presence of our enemies. Our enemies are right there, but they can't touch us because you are with us. And we thank you, Lord, that at this table, we are all the same. We are all sinners, but we are all saved. That's the dual reality we get to live with. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.